What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to Sam Dunks, the weekly NBA show over at Slab Stocks. I'm your host, Sam. Today, we are going over the risk of prospecting, that is, investing money into players who are still very early into their careers and whose future outcomes can cover a wide range of possibilities. Being that it is the time of year where we might want to chase after unproven talent, it is good to remind ourselves that it's a risky venture and it's important to understand the risks. So let's jump right into it. Within the past month, two astronomical sales of two of the top players from each of the past two drafts were recorded. The first came on September 18th in a PWCC Premier Auction, and it was for the 2019 Zion Williamson Prism Black Gold in a BGS 9 grade. That auction ended at $192,000. The second sale came just over the weekend on October 2nd in a Golden Auction. That was for the 2020 LaMelo Ball Prism Black Gold in a PSA 9 grade. That auction ended at $148,000. $830. And I'm not criticizing those sales. If someone is spending real estate type of money on a card, clearly they can afford it, or at least I certainly hope so. But it does present an opportunity for us to evaluate the risks of prospecting and spending real money on players that we simply don't know a whole ton about just yet. And by the way, I did run a video several weeks ago about you know, many of the psychological reasons why the market chases after young guys to such a substantial degree. I would encourage you to go find that video after you watch this one. Take a listen. Uh, might be some interesting details in there for your consideration. Now there are a few drafts that I always force myself to think about when it comes to prospecting in the NBA, especially whenever a new draft comes around. and. Well, then I start dreaming on the potential of whoever is the newest, hottest NBA prospect. The first one that I always think about is the 2013 NBA draft. That leaps to the top of my thought process since I'm a Milwaukee Bucks fan, and that year there were two can't-miss prospects at the top of the draft, and then a third can't-miss prospect who was, you know, there was some uncertainty about whether he'd ever be healthy enough to play very much at all. The top two were Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker. The third, with all the health questions, that was Joel Embiid, who would likely have gone number one overall if it wasn't for the stress fracture in his back that prematurely ended his NCAA career. My Bucks had the second overall pick that year, right after the Cavs with the first overall selection. It didn't really matter who the Cavaliers took number one overall. Either way, my Bucks were guaranteed a franchise cornerstone type of player. As you all know, the Cavaliers took Andrew Wiggins. He was the headliner then, a couple months later, in a trade to Minnesota Timberwolves for Kevin Love. Uh, and that meant, well, after Andrew Wiggins was off the board, Jabari Parker fell into the Bucks' lap at number two overall. Now, consuming all of the Bucks content in the world at the time, the thought process was that Jabari Parker would be the future of the team, and the hope was that Giannis Antetokounmpo would eventually develop into a tantalizing two-way number two type of player behind Jabari, the Robin to Jabari's Batman. In fact, the, the basketball behind me in this case here, I bought it so that I could wait in line for two hours for Jabari Parker to sign it at the Wisconsin State Fair. And thankfully, I also decided to wait in line a few months later for Giannis to sign it at some pick-and-save grocery store somewhere in the middle of the state. I wish I didn't have Jabari Parker's signature on it now. It was December 6th, 2015, when Giannis signed this basketball behind me. I only remember the date because it was Giannis's 21st birthday. He was still an enigma at the time, a blend of length and athleticism that didn't really translate to much more than some crazy Twitter highlights. To that date, Giannis's career averages were 10.5 points, 
5.7 rebounds, 2.3 assists, 0.8 steals, and 0.9 blocks per game. And that was over the course of 178 career games, so pretty large sample size. He'd shown some really nice substantial improvements along the way, but it wasn't until the next season that he'd win Most Improved Player Award and start a run of five consecutive All-Star appearances. He was still three years away from his first of his back-to-back -back MVP awards. He was still four years away from a Defensive Player of the Year award and five seasons away from MVP of the NBA Finals and his 50-point, 14-rebound, five-block performance to bring the NBA title back to Milwaukee. Clearly on his 21st birthday, all of that was just the most unrealistic dream and really nothing more than that. Now, even though at that same point Jabari was coming off of an ACL tear, it still looked like he would be the future face of the franchise and Giannis would be a very, very good second fiddle. Even the next offseason, that still looked like the likely outcome when the Bucks extended Giannis to a four-year, $100 million contract, and they convinced him to not take the five-year max so that Milwaukee could save their one designated five-year maximum rookie extension for Jabari Parker, which we thought we'd offer in the next summer. Since you could only extend one rookie for five years at a time, they were going to save that one for the guy who seemed like more of a lock, and Giannis seemed anything but. Well, obviously, we know what happened since then for Giannis, but it's a much different story for Jabari Parker. Since Giannis's first extension, Jabari is now playing on his sixth team. Uh, last year, as a 25-year-old with both the Sacramento Kings and the Boston Celtics, he averaged five and a half points, three rebounds, and under an assist per game while averaging just under 13 minutes per night. That was over the course of only 13 regular season games. And just a brutal reminder of the uncertainty of prospecting in the NBA. Even the most surefire future all-star type of players can absolutely just fall flat. Remember those sales on the Zion Williamson and LaMelo Ball black gold prisms, which by the way, black gold prisms, those are numbered out of five. Uh, we can look up the two can't-miss prospects from that 2014 draft and see how they're doing now. Uh, no such thing as a prism black gold back then, but we can look up their prism golds, which were numbered out of 10, to find something that's at least you know, pretty comparable. The most recent sale of a 2014 Jabari Parker prism gold rookie card was in a BGS 10 grade, and it sold on April 17th at a fixed price of $305. Andrew Wiggins, he's fared much better, but still just a long, long way away from the current most coveted youngsters. On May 2nd, the 2014 Andrew Wiggins Prism Gold Rookie Card in a PSA 10 grade sold on an eBay auction for $5,955, just 3% of the final sale price of the Zion Black Gold. The point is that we don't know what any of these guys will do, and, and when you buy a card or anything for that matter with the hopes of you know, flipping it later for a profit, you're putting your money at risk. I always think of the 2015 NBA Draft 2, the one that at the time was being called the deepest draft since 2003. Now, there's been good players out of that draft. Carl Anthony Towns went first overall. D'Angelo Russell, he's all right. He went second. Chris Daps Porzingis, he was really good, went fourth. Miles Turner went 11th. Devin Burker went 13th. And when we look back on that draft, it seems ridiculous to think that a guy like Devin Booker lasted until Phoenix with the 13th pick. But at the time, the top 10 was Towns, Russell, Jaleel Okafor, Porzingis, Mario Hezonia, Willie Cauley-Stein, Emmanuel Moutier, Stanley Johnson, Frank Kaminsky, and Justice Winslow, most of whom were considered to be players with pretty substantially high floors. And the wild cards were Hezonia and Moutier, both with astronomical ceilings, it seemed, and who were the favorites of draft nerds around the NBA. And it wasn't Devin Booker going 13th that was considered the steal of the draft. It was Justice Winslow going to Miami at 10th that had NBA fans around the league moaning that Pat Riley had done it again.
But on April 25th of this year, his 2015 Prism Gold Rookie Auto, numbered out of 10 with a BGS 9.5 grade, sold on auction for $107.50. Again, we just don't know how anyone's career is going to pan out. They might get injured. They might become embroiled in some sort of off-the-court issue. They might just be plain bad or never really develop. That's all working against us if we want to invest in prospects. So there are a couple of things that you can do to try to mitigate as much risk as you can as you make your investments. First thing is all about mindset. Number one, only invest the money that you're comfortable losing. And that number will be different for everyone. For some, it might be $192,000. That's the case, good for you. For most people, it's gonna be far less than that. If it's a couple hundred, it's 50, if it's 20, doesn't really matter. If you can afford to lose the money, whatever the amount, even if your investment falls on its face, you're not really out anything provided you didn't stretch your budget to the point where it hurt. It really only becomes painful when you've spent more money than you can actually afford to lose. So that's the first thing. The second thing to do is to try to think like a GM. You know, most people know how to look at a simple box score, and when that's done, it's the players who score a bunch of points that get the most traction in the sports card market, at least in the short term. But in basketball, scoring is just one part of team building. It's a big part, but it's only a part. Uh, Kenny Smith, he explained it on NBA on TNT back in January, I think it was, uh, that there are five or six ways to affect a game. Scoring, rebounding, assists, defense, leadership, pace of game. He went on to explain that superstars lead it in three to four categories every single night. And I really agree with that concept. And, and that's the way I try to think about players. And there are tons of guys that have given the opportunity can score 20 points per night. Almost every player in the league has done that at some point in high school or college or the G League. But it's much harder to find players that can affect the game in other categories in addition to their scoring. Colin Sexton is the name that I always think of in connection with this type of topic. Uh, back in July, it was widely reported that the Cavs were shopping Sexton around, which probably confused a lot of fans at the time, as he is currently something like the face of the franchise, and he did come off of a season in which he averaged just over 24 points per game. The problem is that he just doesn't do a whole ton in addition to that. Uh, he's not a great facilitator, doesn't work to make his teammates better on offense, and he's certainly not a great defender or anything even close to that. He's currently eligible for an extension, and it seems likely that his camp will be seeking a maximum extension. Clearly, the Cavs don't want to be the ones to foot that bill, or else they'd already have extended him by now, rather than enter into training camp with his future status with the franchise still up in the air. It's just very hard to tie up that much cap space into a player who doesn't improve the team in multiple ways and hasn't contributed so much to the win column so far. So if you think like a GM and try to evaluate how many different categories a player can positively affect a game, it's the players that cover multiple areas that are going to sign big extensions and remain with the teams that drafted them, you know, play on winning teams and see multiple all-star games. The players that can only score, they might gain some card market value in the short term. They might even make an all-star team or two on the back of that scoring. But once teams start shopping them around and there's a reluctance to sign them to these long-term deals, or they eventually become viewed as you know, massive overpays like Andrew Wiggins, well, that reluctance by front offices will start to leak its way out into the sports card market as well, and we'll see the prices suffer. That's the second thing. The third thing that you can do is learn when to sell. You know, every year there's an ebb and flow to the sports card marketplace. The general rule of thumb is buy in the offseason, sell at the beginning of the season, especially if you're looking more in the term of short-term flips. If you're looking longer term, you still should have a game plan of when to sell in order to minimize your risk. 
good buddy of mine texted me a couple weeks ago asking uh, if he should sell his Juan Soto Bowman Chrome Rookie Auto. He was in it for 350 bucks. The most recent sale at the time was something like 10 times that. I think it was for $3,500. I told him he should probably just sell it, but he explained that he was thinking of holding it for 20 to 30 years for a lot of reasons. I don't think that's very wise. You know, very few players will prove to be 20 to 30 year holds. The best policy on when to sell that I've ever heard of came from an Instagram story by Patrick Ryan at the P Ryan collection on Instagram. Perhaps you follow him. He suggested to someone that if you're holding a card that grows in value to a price at which you would no longer buy that card, that's probably a good time to sell. You know, I think that's smart. Rather than always trying to project out into the future, which can get you in trouble. If a card is worth more than more to someone else than it currently is to you, that's probably a pretty good time to sell. If you do those three things, you've cut out a significant amount of risk when it comes to prospecting. Not that you'll suddenly be risk-free, but at least you'll have mitigated some of the damage that you might bring upon yourself by either stretching your budget or chasing the hottest names due to some fear of missing out without really evaluating the player or missing a good selling opportunity because you got greedy. If you do those three things, I think you'll be just fine in the long term and have some fun by buying prospects. For the record, I do like LaMelo Ball and Zion Williamson. Both look like they can be very good players that affect the game in numerous ways and should be good longer-term holds provided that they stay healthy. I don't have nearly the budget for those black golds. That's like a thousand times the price that I'd be comfortable buying cards for based on my own personal finances. But in general, I do like both of those players a lot as prospects. Although, I also did like Jabari Parker a lot too, for what it's worth. So maybe take everything I say with a grain of salt. And there you have it. Those are some of the risks of prospecting and some of the tools that you can use to protect yourself in a risky market. I hope this has been a beneficial discussion for you. In any case, thank you so much for your time, and we will see you next week.